Amen. Well, I invite you to take your copy of Scripture and turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. And uh, as you're turning there, I want to remind you that this year we've been looking at the theme of discipleship, the theme of discipleship. And in particular, we've been looking at the theme of discipleship from the Beatitudes. Uh, This series in the Beatitudes we have entitled, and you'll see this on the front of your bulletin this morning, Discipleship, the King, the Kingdom, and the Way. And I want to explain to you this morning that actually in this series that we've been in, The King, the Kingdom, and the Way, you hear it there in the title, there's three parts to this series, okay? Three parts to this series. So we began by focusing on the kingdom and the blessings of the kingdom, and we took eight weeks and walked through each one of the Beatitudes. And now in the second part of the series, which begins this morning, we will look at the King. And we're going to step back and kind of look at the Beatitudes as a whole, and we'll take two, two weeks to look at what the Beatitudes teach us about the person of Jesus, about who Jesus is. And we'll see this week that Jesus is the new Moses, and then next week uh, we will see that Jesus is the blessed man. And then finally, this is the third part in the series, we will consider the way of the kingdom. And we'll take two weeks and consider how we can follow the king in the way of the kingdom. So, I want us to turn now to Matthew chapter 5. I'm going to read for us verses 1 through 12. And uh, you'll find this passage on page 809 and 810 if you're using one of the Bibles that we provide for you. So, Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, For they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you and praise you for your word. Lord, we pray that you would be with us now as we turn to your word. Give us wisdom and insight. Lead us by your spirit into all truth. And we pray, Father, that as we encounter the person of the Lord Jesus in your word, that you would change us and transform us that you would be glorified in our time together. And it's through Christ we ask it. Amen. I've entitled our message this morning, Jesus is the New Moses. And there are certain figures associated with certain ideas or movements. So for example, George Washington will forever be associated with the United States of America. Martin Luther King Jr. will forever be associated with the Civil Rights Movement. Babe Ruth with professional baseball, Elon Musk with the electric car, Gandhi with Hinduism, Muhammad with Islam, and of course, Moses will always be associated with 
Judaism. Judaism is a religion based on the Old Testament Scriptures, which we find in the Bible. And most would agree that the three most important figures in the Old Testament, and therefore the three most important figures in Judaism, are Abraham, Moses, and David. And a good argument could be made that the most significant figure in the Old Testament is Moses. Now, this is important for us in our study this morning for at least a couple of reasons. The first reason why this is important is because Moses' prominence in the Old Testament, it's significant to us this morning in our study because Matthew, in his gospel, was primarily writing to a Jewish audience. Many of you know that there are four gospel accounts in the Bible. So there's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Each one of them is kind of a biography of the person of Jesus. And each one of these gospel accounts was written with a specific audience in mind. So Matthew was written with Jews in mind. Mark was thinking particularly about an audience that was made up of Romans. Luke, Gentiles. And John, we could say kind of a combination of all. John's kind of a universal gospel in that sense with all of these different groups in mind. So Matthew's audience, which was a Jewish audience, would have been particularly interested in understanding the relationship between Moses and Jesus. So this is one of the reasons why uh, this is important, that um, Moses is significant in the Old Testament because Matthew was writing his gospel to primarily a Jewish audience, and they would have been particularly interested in the relationship between Moses and Jesus. Another reason why Moses' prominence in the Old Testament is significant to our study this morning is because Moses himself prophesied that God would raise up another prophet like him. Moses prophesied that God would raise up another prophet like him. And Moses' prophecy has long been understood to be a messianic prophecy. That is a prophecy that anticipates the coming Messiah. So in Matthew, or I'm sorry, Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 through 18, Moses wrote these words. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, or see this great fire any more lest I die. And the Lord said to me, They are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I commanded him. So Matthew is eager to demonstrate that Jesus is a prophet like Moses, and therefore a fulfillment of Moses' messianic prophecy. So Matthew would have read Deuteronomy chapter 18, and now he's eager to demonstrate that Jesus is in fact this prophet that has been prophesied. And I want to show you this morning from the opening chapters of Matthew's gospel, and in particular from the Beatitudes, that Jesus does in fact fulfill Moses' prophecy. And that Jesus is, in fact, a new and better Moses. One of the reasons I want to show you this this morning is because one of the most important aspects of the gospel accounts, if not the most important aspect of the gospel accounts, is their revelation of who Jesus is. So the gospels not only show us the blessed life of the kingdom, they not only show us how we can follow the king, they also reveal to us who the king is. 
The Gospels reveal to us who Jesus is. And we will see this morning that Matthew reveals to us that Jesus is the new and better Moses. And because Jesus is the new and better Moses, He is to be worshipped. He is to be followed. He is to be trusted. He is to be obeyed. So our outline this morning is simple, just two points. First, we will consider Jesus is the new Moses. And then secondly, we will consider four applications, and we'll look at each one of those quickly. So first of all, let's consider Jesus is the new Moses. Look there in chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, and we read these words. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying... Now notice here, in verse 1, Matthew tells us that Jesus went up on the mountain. And then in verse 2, he says, and he opened his mouth and taught them. Now I want to suggest, and this is not original with me, there are any number of scholars and commentators who have pointed this out, but I want to suggest that Matthew is inviting us here to see a parallel between Jesus and Moses. Matthew is inviting us to see that Jesus is a prophet like Moses. So let me ask you this. Can you think of any significant event in Moses' life in which he went up on a mountain and he taught the people? Well, of course, the most significant event, or one of the most significant events in Moses' life, and therefore one of the most significant events in all of the Old Testament, is Moses' ascent of Mount Sinai. Moses went up on Mount Sinai, And this is where God revealed to Moses the law, in particular the Ten Commandments. And then God sent Moses back down and he taught the people uh, the law. So what we see here is that as Moses went up the mountain and taught the people God's law, so Jesus here goes up the mountain and declares to the people the nature and the way of his kingdom. Now some of you might say, well that's an interesting parallel But is it really enough to say that Matthew is intentionally attempting to convey to us that Jesus is the new Moses? And that's a great question. And here's how I would respond. If this was all the evidence that we had to support our claim that Matthew views Jesus as a new Moses, then I believe we would probably be on shaky ground. But it's not. There's a lot more evidence. And I want to show it to you this morning. First of all, I want to show you how leading up to Matthew chapter 5, in Matthew's chapter 1 through 4, Matthew consistently records events in Jesus' life that remind us, his readers, of the life of Moses. And I want to make this clear before we look at these events. Matthew is not making up these events in order to draw a parallel between Jesus' life and the life of Moses. Matthew is simply recognizing that God providentially ordered the life of Moses and then providentially ordered the life of Jesus in such a way that the correspondence between the two is undeniable. And then Matthew is highlighting those similarities in order to make the larger point that Jesus is a prophet like Moses. Now, I want us to see these events in Moses' life and then see the parallel in Jesus' life, but for the sake of time, what I'll do, we're not going to turn back to Exodus to see the events in Moses' life. I will simply uh, recount what took place in Moses' life, and then we will look at the text that parallels in Jesus' life. So, the first event is this. 
Moses was born during a time in which Pharaoh, king of Egypt, had declared that all Hebrew boys who were born were to be slaughtered. But God delivered baby Moses. His mother hid him for three months. Then baby Moses was placed in a basket where the daughter of Pharaoh discovered him and adopted Moses into the royal family. Now, look at Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. So flip back just a few pages. In Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, we read these words. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And then skip down to verse 16. In verse 16 we read, Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. So do you see the parallel here? In both accounts, you have a wicked king, Pharaoh on the one hand, Herod on the other. You have God's chosen servant. And when they are born, the wicked king declares that all of the male children in that region should be slaughtered. And yet God divinely intervenes in order to save the chosen child. Moses on the one hand, Jesus on the other. But there's more. When Moses was grown, he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew slave. And so Moses intervened and murdered the Egyptian. As a result, Moses was required to flee his home, which was Egypt at the time and then to remain in exile in Midian. But after many years later, after he was in exile for many years, he returned to his home. Now, we see a parallel again in the life of Jesus. Turn to Matthew chapter 2 and look at verses 13 through 15. Verses 13 through 15. Verse 13, Now when they had departed... And this is the wise men, they are departing. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I have called my son. And look down at verse 19. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he arose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. So on both occasions here, we see Moses and Jesus are required, because um, they are in danger, they are required to flee their homeland. They are in exile for a number of years, and then the leader who they are in causes them danger, dies, and then they return back to their homeland. In fact, it's interesting in chapter 2, verse 20, where Matthew says, for those who sought the child's life are dead, almost the exact same wording is used in Exodus chapter 4, verse 19, when we read, and the Lord said to Moses and Midian, go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. But there's more. After God delivers Moses and his people from Egyptian bondage and slavery, Moses spends 40 years in the wilderness where he and the people of God are tempted and tried. 
Turn to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. And in Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, we read these words. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And then the rest of the verses down to verse 11 record Satan's temptations of Jesus. So, What we have is Moses and the people of God are led into the wilderness. They are tempted and tried for 40 years. And Jesus is led into the wilderness and tempted and tried for 40 days and 40 nights. And it's also noteworthy that every time that Satan tempts Jesus in the wilderness in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus responds to Matthew's temptation by citing the book of Deuteronomy. And who wrote the book of Deuteronomy? Moses. Deuteronomy represents Moses' second proclamation of the law of God. So we have all these events in Moses' life and Jesus' life that are parallel to one another. And Matthews are laying these things out in a way in which we would observe and notice these parallels. And then we come to Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. And as we read a few moments ago, we'll read again. It's, Matthew records here, "...seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain." And when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying. Now, we might assume that, you know, there was a large crowd there, and so the only reason that Jesus went up on the mountain was because he needed to be seen and he needed to be heard by the gathered crowd. And of course, in part, that is true. But it's also, as we look at this more closely, it seems clear that Matthew is intending to convey something further, deeper. In fact, The construction, the grammatical construction that Matthew uses here when he says he went up on the mountain is only used three times in the Old Testament. And every single time it is used to refer to Moses going up on Mount Sinai. In Exodus chapter 19 verse 3, in Exodus chapter 24 verse 18, and in Exodus chapter 34 verse 4. But that's not all. The Sermon on the Mount begins in chapter 5. It goes through chapter 6 and then chapter 7. And we have, Mo- we have Jesus here going up on the mountain to teach, which is reminiscent of Moses going up on the mountain to receive the law. And then in Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 to 48, Jesus repeatedly cites Moses. He repeatedly, in the Sermon on the Mount, cites the Old Testament law and then authoritatively interprets and applies the law. Let me show you this. Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. Notice there, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. And then he goes on to unpack that principle in the following verses. But let me ask you this. Who was it that said to them of old, you shall not murder? Moses, right? In Exodus chapter 20, verse 13, it's one of the Ten Commandments. In fact, it's the sixth of the Ten Commandments. Look at chapter 5, verse 27. Jesus goes on to say in chapter 5, verse 27, You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. 
And then he goes on to unpack that principle in the following verses. Again, where had they heard, you shall not commit adultery? Moses. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 14, it's another of the Ten Commandments. It's the seventh of the Ten Commandments. Look at Exodus chapter 5, verse 31. Jesus goes on to say, It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Well, who was it that said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce? It was Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1. Look at Matthew chapter 5, verses 33, or verse 33. Jesus says, again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is the footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Again, who was it that said, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform what the Lord uh, what uh, you shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. Of course, it was Moses. In Leviticus chapter 19, verse 12, in Numbers chapter 30, verse 2, in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 21. Look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 38. Here Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Well, who was it that said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth? It was Moses in Exodus 21-24, Leviticus 24-20, Deuteronomy 19-21. And then finally, look at chapter 5, verse 43. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Who was it that said, You shall love your neighbor? It was Moses in Leviticus chapter 19 verse 8. So what we have here in this section in Matthew chapter 5 is that Jesus is citing Moses over and over again, but then Jesus is claiming a greater authority than Moses. You have heard it said, but I say to you. Jesus is presenting himself here as one who has even a greater authority than Moses. As one New Testament scholar reflecting on these verses writes, quote, Jesus is presented as the new and final arbiter of God's law, thereby functioning as a new and final Moses, end of quote. So in all these ways, as Matthew is paralleling in the first four chapters, paralleling events between the life of Moses and the life of Jesus, as Matthew draws this image of Jesus going up on the mountain to teach, similar to Moses going up on Mount Sinai. As Matthew records Jesus saying over and over and over again, you have heard it said, but I say to you, in all of these ways, Matthew is presenting Jesus to us as a prophet like Moses. In fact, a new and better Moses. And therefore... We should, and this leads us to our second point, four applications. Therefore, we should worship, we should follow, we should trust, and we should obey Jesus. First of all, we should worship. 
We don't have to read our Bibles for too long to understand that prophecies were given in the Old Testament, and then those prophecies were fulfilled in Jesus in the New Testament. In fact, in the book of Matthew, we read on several occasions, now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. And when we read the Bible, we learn quickly that there are, in the Old Testament, clear and direct prophecies that then are fulfilled in the person of Jesus. But it is also important for us to see that beyond those specific and direct prophecies, so much of the structure the patterns, the prophetic figures, the images of the Old Testament also point to Jesus and find their fulfillment in Him. In fact, Jesus' fulfillment of the Old Testament is so broad and so rich and so deep that none of us have fully comprehended or appreciated it. And why did God design the Old Testament in this way? I mean, isn't it remarkable enough that Jesus fulfills specific, direct, clear Old Testament prophecies? Why did God design the structures and the patterns and the figures and the images of the Old Testament in such a way that they also find their fulfillment in Jesus? I believe one of the reasons why God has designed the Old Testament in this way is because God's fulfillment of His redemptive plan in Jesus is not just to be known, but it is to be marveled at. And it is to inspire in us worship. I think about our national anthem, the Star-Spangled Banner. You know, one could say, in the battle, the light from the bombs were exploding... And they revealed that the American flag was still in its place. Right? It's clear, factual, that's what happened. Or one could say, and the rocket's red glare, the bombs bursting in air, gave proof through the night that our flag was still there. Now why would you say it that way? Well, of course, because the poetry of those words is intended to inspire and evoke wonder in our minds, in our hearts. And I believe this is one of the reasons why God has designed the structures, the patterns, the figures, the images of the Old Testament in such a way that they would find their fulfillment in Jesus. Because what God has done in the Old Testament is woven all of these prophetic aspects of the Old Testament together in a mysterious, beautiful tapestry. So that the more we discover, the more we see how they are fulfilled in Jesus, the more we are moved to awe and to wonder and to worship. So understand this, Jesus did, or Moses did not just give a specific prophecy about the coming Messiah in Deuteronomy 18, and then it was fulfilled in Jesus. That did, in fact, happen. But in addition to that, Moses' entire life, from childhood to exile to the exodus to lawgiver, establishes a redemptive biography and pattern that is ultimately repeated and fulfilled in Jesus. In all these ways, Jesus is a prophet like Moses, and we are intended to marvel and to worship.
Second, we should follow Jesus. We should worship Him, and secondly, we should follow Him. So when Moses declared in Matthew chapter 18, verse 15, the Lord your God will raise up a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers, it is to him you shall listen, Moses was speaking of the coming Messiah. And so to say, we just want to make this clear, to say that Jesus is a prophet like Moses, or to say that Jesus is a new and better Moses, is to say that Jesus is the promised Messiah. And that means we are to follow Him. In fact, the turning point in Matthew's gospel takes place in Matthew chapter 16. Jesus says to His disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they say to Him, Some say John the Baptist, some say you're Elijah, others say you're Jeremiah, one of the prophets. And then Jesus gets personal with his disciples. He says, but who do you say that I am? And you remember, perhaps, Peter's good confession. Peter says, you are the Christ, that is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Immediately, Jesus commends Peter, and then right after Peter's good confession, Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So listen, my friends. If Jesus is a new and better Moses, that means Jesus is the Messiah, and that means he is worthy of our lives. We must follow him. We must be willing to lose our lives, to surrender our lives, to give them away in order that we might follow Him. We must be willing to say, Jesus, my life is now yours. I will follow. My dreams, my ambitions, my desires, my goals, I submit them all to you and I will follow. Jesus is the new and better Moses, so we must worship Him. We must follow Him. Third, we must trust Him. We must trust Him. Now, we've seen in Matthew chapter 5 that Jesus resembles Moses because Jesus is standing on a mountain and He's authoritatively teaching and interpreting and applying the law. And so sometimes we might be tempted to think of Moses in the Old Testament as primarily a lawgiver. And of course, we can understand why. It's through Moses that God revealed the law, in particular through Moses that we received the Ten Commandments. But we must remember that before Moses was a lawgiver, Moses was a deliverer. He was a redeemer. He was a savior. You remember the first time that God appeared to Moses in the burning bush? God does not say to Moses... I'm calling you, Moses, to reveal my law to my people, right? The first thing he says to Moses is, I want you to go to Egypt and you tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And it was Moses who led the people of God out of bondage of Egyptian slavery, right? It was Moses who delivered them from 400 years of slavery, And it was Moses when the people were trapped between the Egyptian army behind them and the Red Sea before them and their death was certain and sure. It was Moses who parted the Red Sea and they went through on dry ground and then the waters closed in on the Egyptian army and they were swallowed up in death. 
This has led one New Testament commentator to write, quote, Although modern Christians tend to think of Moses primarily as a lawgiver, to the ancient Jews he was far more. Moses was primarily remembered as a redeemer, a deliverer, and a savior. Presentation of Jesus as the new Moses emphasizes Jesus' redemptive role, end of quote. And so this idea that Jesus, that, that Moses is a deliverer, that he's a redeemer, of course, fits perfectly with the mission and the purpose of Jesus. In fact, Matthew's gospel opens with this declaration. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, the angel of the Lord appears to Joseph in a dream and declares to Joseph, Mary will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus, like Moses, is a deliverer. He's a redeemer. He's a savior. But understand, my friends, Jesus does not deliver us from the oppression of Pharaoh and Egyptian slavery. Jesus is a greater savior than Moses. Jesus died on the cross for our sins and he was raised from the dead in order that we might be delivered from the oppression of Satan himself. And from the slavery of sin and death and hell. And how can we experience this salvation? We must trust Him. We must look to Jesus in faith. We must be willing to say, Lord, I cannot save myself, but I put my trust, I put my faith in You by Your death on the cross, by Your resurrection from the dead. Will You save me? Will You deliver me? Will You redeem me? And if we come to the Lord Jesus in faith, Jesus will grant to us a greater salvation than even that of Moses. So Jesus is the new and better Moses, and so we should worship Him, we should follow Him, we should trust Him, and fourth and finally, we should obey Him. We've said that in the Old Testament, Moses was the lawgiver. But we see in the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus speaks with even a greater authority than Moses. Over and over again, he says, you have heard it said from Moses, but I say to you. And then Jesus authoritatively interprets, applies, and fulfills the Old Testament law. Therefore, my friends, if we are to be Jesus' disciples, we must obey Jesus' words. Jesse spoke on this last week from 1 John you remember 1 John chapter 2, verse 3. And by this we know we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. Or Jesus says it this way in John chapter 14, verse 15. If you love Me, you will keep My commandments. So our lives must finally not be ordered by our thoughts or our feelings or our desires. They must not be finally ordered by the influence and opinions of this world or our peers, but rather our lives must first and foremost be ordered by the authoritative words of Jesus. We must seek to know His words, and then we must obey His words. Jesus is, in fact, as Matthew presents to us here in these opening chapters of His gospel, Jesus is, in fact, the new and better Moses And therefore, Jesus is to be worshipped, He is to be followed, He is to be trusted, and He is to be obeyed. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.
Father, we thank you for your word, and we are so grateful for all the promises that you have given to us in your word that are then fulfilled in Jesus. And Lord, we recognize that those promises are so vast and so deep and so mysterious and so glorious that none of us have fully comprehended them or appreciated them. Lord, we thank you for this reality, for all the ways in which Jesus fulfills the life and the role and the promises of Moses. Lord, we do pray that in response we would recognize Jesus for who He is. We pray that we would worship Him, that we would follow Him, that we would trust Him and obey Him. Take Your Word now, Lord, and we pray that You would apply it to our hearts for Your glory. And it's through Jesus Christ our Lord we pray.